Brothers with our special guest star this week, <laughs> Mr. Ronan Chris Murphy. <laughs> How are you guys? Get that turned down. Make sure that we are live. And there we are. Okay, we are good to go. So anyway, um, very, very excited to have Ronan join me on the show today. Join us on the show today. We're having a little bit of a white balance issue because I haven't had a guest on the show in studio against the green screen, and I think the blue shirt is freaking it out. <laughs> oh, I noticed before that my maroon shirt was making my hair look grayer than it actually is in real life. Yeah, I, I buttoned up my shirt before my hair got darker. <laughs> Anyways, the producer, engineer, and mixer, Ronan Chris Murphy, has worked with the likes of King Crimson, King Crimson on several albums. Steve Morse from The Dregs and Deep Purple, Terry Bozio from Zappa and Missing Persons, Steve Stevens from Billy Idol, Tony Levin has played uh, bass with Peter Gabriel, John Lennon, Pink Floyd, Martin Sexton, Jamie Walters, Ulver? Yeah. Ulver? Ulver? Ulver. Well, Ulver. very good. You almost did the Norwegian pronunciation. Ulver. Yeah. It's a weird thing that like mo lots of people don't know, but if you know it, it's one of my most important credits. All right. Norwegian experimental metal. Okay. Art band. Oh, that's all I listen to these days. <laughs> the California Guitar Ensemble. Um, Nels Klein uh, from Wilco, as well as various projects featuring members of Tool, Ministry, Weezer, Dishwalla, and yes. <laughs> now everybody's going to start and we've done that. Um, sounds like audio problems. You said left channel only? Is that what somebody said? Whoa. Hold on, I'm getting left channel only. Uh, are other people getting left channel only? Okay, applause is Ooh. loud, we're not. Okay. Um, <laughs> Two audio engineers trying to do a I, podcast. <laughs> and I checked all this out before I did the show. The claps were right side. Um, I, I don't know what yes means. We're getting left only? Wow. Opening the applause. Applause and opening tracks were stereo. Okay. This is weird. Applause and stereo. Michael in left only. Yeah, that's a mono microphone. Yeah. <laughs> that is so weird. Um, left channel only. Okay, hang in there, guys. I can solve this problem. I'm trying a new microphone today from our friends at AKG, but I am going to revert... back to the old microphone and that should solve the problem Testing, testing, testing. All right, is that better? Testing, testing, testing. No audio at all. No, there's a little delay. Okay. No sound. Yes, better, okay. There you go. The truth is most of audio engineering is stuff just like this. Right. Wondering why the heck sound isn't getting from point A to point B correctly. It's some, <laughs> a little bit of so art. Weird. People are saying... Fixed better. I don't know who to believe. Fixed better. Volume could come up. <laughs> okay, here, let me do one more thing, you guys, and then we got to get on with the show. I, I got to quit trying new gear. Every time I try something, 
Um, I mess it up. Okay, where is that mixer? I know it's in there. Rendezvous audio mixer. I don't want that. There we go. Audio mixer. Okay, testing, testing, testing. One, two, three. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, I see you. Oh, does that have a limiter on there? It seems to be capping right um, at minus 19. Hey, there hey, we hey, go. Hey, hey. Testing, testing, testing. How are we doing now? Okay. Very, volume very low. Hey, hey, hey. Check, check. One, two. Hey, 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 hey. Yeah. <laughs> this is quality entertainment right here. Yeah. How many engineers does it <laughs> take to solve a problem? All right. Talk is lower than the music applause, but you sound good. Better, better, no difference. Who the hell is... <laughs> Come on, you guys. I need uniformity in your answers. But whatever we do, let's not do any sound effects. Right. Because if people crank up to hear us, no, no, no. <laughs> Here, I brought those down already. <laughs> okay. A skosh It's coming in Swedish. Okay. Thanks, PJ. <laughs> All right. I'm bringing it up a tad. All right. There we go. We are set. Uh, just listen to me, Michael, says Mary and Laird. All right, so let's get right to the questions. Like I said, Ronan is a world-class audio engineer. You wouldn't know it to think. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, he's an old friend. Uh, he'll be at the Road Rally. Yes. Um, what are you doing at the Road Rally this year? I'm um, doing one-on-one mentoring, some of the drive-by things, but I'm doing two things. I'm doing uh, one course on kind of what's kind of hot in music production right now and okay. kind of That's showing good. people like what's happening and how you can, whatever is hot right now, how you can apply that in your own work and the techniques that are being used. That's great. Uh, and I'm also going to do one, and that's going to be in the theater because we've got the good sound playback for that. Right. And I'm going to do another one uh, just on um, basically music and video games. It's kind of creation and implementation because I've been doing a lot of that work. I mean, this um, last half a year, most of my most of my income has been working with, you know, checks from video game companies. Okay, and, so, but... There are a lot of audio aspects to video games. So laying in existing music or mixing music for video games? Um, well, I basically want to kind of create a platform almost. I mean, there's some things that I want to get across, but almost like a Q&A because video games is such a huge like market and, yeah. and venue for kind of, you know, create everything from original score, which is done. You have to conceptualize it completely different than movie scores. Right. But there's, you know, needle drop stuff for classic stuff. There's needle drop for music libraries. And so there's a lot of uses and implementation. There's a lot of sort of, you know, taking existing things and reworking them for different scenarios. So a lot of audio post. Yeah. Not, not just music mixing, yeah. but doing audio post and sound design as well. Yeah. Everything so, that requires audio at a high level. Yeah. And so, I mean, what I'm yeah. mostly what I'm doing is, you know, I used to be an audio lead for Microsoft years ago. But you know, mostly what I'm doing is engineering work. So I'm recording and mixing for games, and um, but I'm kind of in that world a whole bunch, yeah. which is something that you know certainly before I got into it, I didn't have a lot of you know inside knowledge. So basically, I want to be able to sort of share that with people who have questions about that, give people a little better understanding of what some of the processes are. We had two guys, um, an Israeli friend of my name, uh, Inan Zur, who's uh, like a top three uh, video game composer. Mm -hmm. like, but most of his stuff is done with like full orchestras. Yep. Um, and then another guy named Sasha Dekesian. Mm -hmm. 
and it was a trip. I learned so much from those guys. In video games, you don't just create a score. You have to create a score with 30 different alternate endings because if somebody turns left versus turning right. Correct. And it, the music may start here versus starting later in the you piece. Know, and it's it's done in layers, so based on sort of content, you know, going into enemy territory, spotted by enemy. Right. So the music creation is very dynamic, and when people want to get into that, you know, a lot of times people who work in film scores will sort of jump into that world and and realize they know nothing yeah they, they it's such a different way of thinking yeah and, but you know and it's where a lot of work is again it's it's been most of my income for a bunch of this year wow. and, you know and i'm i i'm under non-disclosure agreements for a bunch of the stuff i'm working on but you know one of the things i'm oh, working, you can tell us we oh yeah that. you will you guys you, you <laughs> promise not to tell but you know i'm working on something that the you know the the last one that came out did half a billion in sales Wow. So, you know, it's it's bigger than a lot of film and TV and things like that. Um, well, shoot, I wish I could go to that, but I think I'll be uh, in the ballroom doing something else. But uh, I, I want to have you back to talk in depth about that subject because okay. it's fascinating to me being, you know, a retired audio engineer. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's almost like the, the, the detailed, like spreadsheet technicalities of it are as important as understanding audio, but you have to do both at yeah. a high level to yeah. do that work. And, and the most exciting pioneering stuff in professional audio right now is happening in games. Wow. And hands down, the coolest, most exciting stuff. And not even just like music stuff I'm doing, but I'm talking in terms of real-time sound design and implementation and immersive environments. All that stuff is just, but video games are pushing the envelope so much yeah. farther in a much more effective way than almost anything else at the moment. One of my uh, daughters is uh, like a marketing person who wrangles influencers in the video game industry. Mm -hmm. So she identifies who the influencers are, strikes a deal with them, and gets them paid in order for them to endorse products. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. There are kids who are like 17, 18, 19 years old that are making six-figure and seven-figure oh, in income absolutely. just by wearing somebody's T-shirt. See, I should have worn a T-shirt with you know, like a video game company on today. Yeah. I've got anyway. obscure Canadian art metal bands. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's start with the questions. I saw some good ones already. Oh, in. you did? Okay. Uh -huh. um, maybe if I quit yammering on. And you guys know the drill, but for new people, uh, there you go. The word question in all caps really gets our attention. Hi, Ronan. On Ivory Piano Software from Synthology, how do you get rid of that high-pitched drone that's inherent in ivory piano software. Interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that I, I, haven't, I haven't used that one, so yeah. I can't speak specifically to it. Um, but what I would guess is that that high-pitched drone is some kind of sympathetic resonance. Um, you know, that's when they sample a key. Right. I'm assuming this is a sample-based one and not a sort of virtually created. Right. Um, you know, and it's probably that they probably built that in to give it a sense of being a little bit more real and natural. Because when you do record a real piano, it's kind of a mush. And I don't say that as a negative. It's beautiful. I love recording real pianos. But there's so much resonance of, you know, the wood is resonating. And when you, you know, hit a key, especially with the sustain pedal down, you know, you're hitting that key, but it's resonating all the strings around mm -hmm. it. And, you know, the strings around it, since piano, like piano strings cross over like that, it's everything. So that my hunch is that they probably built some of that in to try and make it feel a little Sound bit more, more natural, real. Right? 
And again, without sitting down and working with the software, my hunch would be that you pull up a different library. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. Cause, I mean, I've heard good things about that library, um, yeah. and I've got to wonder, you know, is it something in his playback system that's causing it a resonance? It could be, but if it's only I, that plugin doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But that would I be my guess. Yeah. You would think that they'd have 100,000 consumers all complaining about that yeah. same issue. Yeah. Or take your car keys off the top of your monitor. <laughs> that might be it. Or the martini glass. Yes. Um, all right. Next question. Luffs, lift, <laughs> lust, or laugh? How to use it appropriately and not misuse it? <laughs> wow, Stanley. That's a great question. Um, what does luffs stand for? It's a... It's a, 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 it's a, it's a loudness uh, unit. It's right. Basically, it's it's a very close cousin. Like if you don't have the proper tools, usually RMS or average levels, you know, the RMS setting on a meter will give you something in the very close ballpark. Yeah, uh, it's a little difference because LUFs can often, well, in some situations, depending on the type you're using, analyze across you know four minutes of audio or an hour of audio. Right. So there's moment. Can you change the parameters? There's momentary. There's integrated LUFs. Um, the tricky thing about this is. Um, in a general rule, I think people get too, they fuss about it way too much. Um, the, the only time, actually the only time where I really worry about it is when I'm doing mixing and mastering for Atmos. Okay. Um, because you have very specific, uh, guidelines about what you can do to be within spec. Um, but it's, um, so... Luffs were basically it's talking about how loud is how loud is stuff that's you know very technically incorrect, but where you hear see it a lot is hey we're going to master our music to this Luffs target, um, and there's a lot of interesting arguments about the pros and the cons of different levels, and there's a lot of talk on the internet about you know shooting for these very conservative Luffs levels you know minus fourteen minus eighteen etc. Who are those guys that like conservative lusts? I mean, yeah, but I mean, there's valid arguments about why they might want to push it because all things like a dynamic piece of music and a less dynamic piece of music, when they're played together, um, basically when they're level adjusted after the fact, the more dynamic one can actually sound bigger and punchier. Yeah. Um, the super important thing to remember this when, you know, some somebody on the internet is saying you have to do it, blah, 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 you're an idiot, you're a bad engineer if you don't shoot for these target LUFS levels. It's super important to remember that nearly 100% of the hit makers in the industry right now aren't listening to that at all. Interesting. It, so who is listening? I mean, mastering engineers are clearly aware of it, but yeah. I don't know that... Um, Maybe they have to be more technically precise when they output their stuff. But um, yeah, back in my day of engineering, which I mean, we probably started around the same time. Some mm -hmm. of us are still mm -hmm. doing it. Others of us have a, a worldwide hit <laughs> television show. Um, but, it, you know, basically you tip the meters up uh, until yeah. they were just tipping into the red a bit. Mm -hmm. And we all just did that with a regular yeah. old ballistic yeah. VU meter and yeah. it sounded fine. Yeah. And that means something different in the world, digital versus... Yeah. Um, uh, analog. So the important thing for when you're shooting for levels, my opinion, and but it's not unique, is in terms of loudness, like how much limiting do you want to do? How much compression do you want to do? I'm kind of going for a level of like density. Oh, it sounds really good when I push it this, mm -hmm. uh, this far, or this is really consistent with what's happening in the genre. 
Um, and uh, but the thing is, most most of the streaming services where people are listening to most of the time now, yeah. will take loud things and turn them down. Uh, I don't think any of them turn anything up, but they will take loud things and turn them down. Literally turning them down or setting a ceiling with a limiter? No, literally a... turning them down. Okay. So and this is where it gets interesting and people say, oh, this is the end of the loudest war. So <laughs> if something is like just smashed and super loud, well, it's going to turn that down a bunch. And there's a website called Loudness Penalty. It might be loudnesspenalty.com. <laughs> but if you search for loudness penalty, you can upload a mix and it will basically analyze it and say, oh, yeah, Apple would turn this down 7 dB. Uh, you know, um, Spotify would turn it down 9 dB, whatever, yeah. those kinds of things. So you can look at it. But there's valid arguments about why one might want to create, let something be more dynamic so it doesn't get turned down and maybe even sounds louder. All and super valid, geeky discussions. But the important thing to remember is if we went and looked at the top 10 songs in the United States right now, I would I would have no problem putting money down that at least nine of them are way, 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 way louder than the, um, the smart folks on the internet tell you you should master something. Interesting. I, I know looking at waveforms of taxi member music, like when I do the, the top 10 show once a month, um, you know, some of it's just a brick wall. Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally, it, it's, there's no variation whatsoever in the waveform. Uh, and Which, frankly, it, it doesn't sound good to me. But if we looked at the top 10 songs in the country right now, yeah. I bet most of them are similar to that. Right. I'm sure they yeah. are. So one of the things I recommend people do is if you you know, have streaming services where you shuffle things throughout the day, play playlists and the like, you know, if, it's, if you have it going in a cafe or your dinner parties, turn on their sort of, Apple calls it sound check or loudness normalization, turn it on for those situations. But when you're sitting in your studio as like, I'm a creator, Mm -hmm. keep all of those off because we want to see what Nicki Minaj is right. mastering engineer did mastering her latest single we want to see what that reissue of a Eagles record did <laughs> um, all of that so we want to look at all those so we can go oh this is what the most successful people in the world are doing right now we make our own decisions based on that it's amazing I, I was just telling Ronan that I got these new monitors the Yamaha MSP 7s MS7P no MSP 7s uh, a month or two ago and um, Steely Dan Asia is my go-to mm -hmm. for checking out a new room or new monitors so I put that on just listening to the difference between hearing it on Spotify, hearing it on Apple Music, hearing it on three different versions, all different remaster dates on YouTube, mm -hmm. nothing sounded good and none of them <laughs> sounded the same. Astonishing. We're in strange times. Yes, yeah, so I pulled out <laughs> vinyl. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> then it sounded really good. Wow. Oh. Um, yeah, it's. I was stuck in traffic the other day on the 405 and, and just listening to radio, uh, there are no dynamics left. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that this is a shock to me, but there's just no dynamics. Mm -hmm. And back in the days, you know, when you first started working at King Crimson and I was cutting my teeth at Criteria, you wanted dynamics. I mean, especially if you were doing like a jazz date or something, yeah. you know. Um, but there's none of that life breathed into records now. It's all but, boom, boom, but boom. But the important boom. thing about this is this is where we are. Like, in, yeah. you know, in, in, in taxi world where a lot of people are making things specifically for, I want to reach some broadcast quality target or to be in line with you know, some sort of industry norms. Mm -hmm. um, 
to a lot really dynamic records to a lot of people will sound kind of amateur mm -hmm. um, where people just aren't used to listening that way so the super important thing is since stuff is very likely going to be squashed you really want to focus on creating dynamics spectrally and with arrangements where your things get brighter and darker throughout the mix where big guitars come in and guitars disappear but that's fairly advanced stuff when you start getting into you know uh, spectral compression no that... no i'm not even talking that much oh i'm talking about when you bring in a tambourine on the chorus yeah you bring in a whole bunch of high frequency energy yeah in you created that spectral shift okay. you know when you have the drummer who's like really bashing a crash cymbal on the intro or you know with a bright 12 string guitar and then verse comes in and right. you know she goes over to the hi-hat and then you switch over to a nylon string guitar so these arrangement things that create it so so you don't have to use special plug-in spectral tools or anything like that it's just stuff like i mean there's a reason why you know since you know 50s oh chorus comes in here's the tambourine even yeah. when masters were more dynamic it's a way to create a sense of motion and dynamic in an era where you know, because even if you create a very dynamic master and you're lucky enough to have a radio hit, it's going to get bludgeoned on the radio. So any dynamics that you've put in, because a guy on the Internet said you should, well, you're lucky enough to get that on radio. It's yeah, it's going to get squashed down. So, yeah, really think about creating a sense of dynamic with arrangement and again, changes in frequency and tonality. Yeah. Um, Doing multiband compression is not for beginners no and the thing about this is we've really taken a turn from this luffs thing sorry yeah. everybody who's written no, great questions i'm actually got a follow-on question about but, this you know a lot of people just default to using these multi-band compressors so if you don't know what that are they they basically sort of don't really slice but they cut the frequency range of something into different bands and then do compression independently bass middle yeah. stuff and, and, and high can, end yeah so they, it can it can be like two bands it can be 16 bands and a lot of people go oh, i master with this or i throw this on everything if you get what you love great but the problem with i just mentioned talking about kind of creating a sense of dynamic through spectral energy like hey make it get brighter in the chorus make it get a little darker well what a multi-band compressor will do especially if you use it aggressively it will go in and un undo that right so it will actually take those change those, just at those select those dynamic changes and right. frequencies that created that sense of movement and dynamic in your mix and it'll flatten that out for you yeah so compression is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing oh, but but, let, but it's so beautiful and it, you should agree, you sh but and it's so critical that, that you should to... be you should be obsessed about mastering it yes Yes. I agree with that yes. 100%. Yes. Um, I remember back in the day, literally spending hours, you know, hanging out in the studio when everybody else went home, sitting there with just a single instrument mm -hmm. and trying everything in the rack and trying every setting on it until I found something I liked. And then you make a mental note. Okay, so next time I'm doing like a, a Hofner bass mm -hmm. that's played halfway up the neck, the DBX 160 works really good mm -hmm. at a four to one. Yeah. And that becomes your, your library, your, your uh, quiver of arrows to use. Yeah. Cause the same setting on a, on a Fender P bass in a lower octave won't sound good, mm -hmm. but people don't know that. Or okay. Then, so then you get an LA two A and just, yeah. Uh, LA three, my, still my favorites <laughs> out of all of them. Solid state version of the same. Yeah. Yep. I love that thing anyway. And everybody laughed at me cause it only had two knobs. Mm -hmm. But now it's like a really desirable piece yes. of gear. I told you, suckers. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
Okay, so a follow-on question. Yeah. People are always asking me about what should I use for bus compression because I, I want to have that glue sound. And I say, you know, there is no absolute one-size-fits-all prescription because it depends. Are we talking a Nora Jones record? Are we talking a death metal record? Mm -hmm. As I point to your shirt that's now hidden. Because um, they each will require a different type of bus compression, maybe a different brand or a different mm -hmm. model, yep. um, clearly a different setting. How would you define glue now that I've laid out that it's not one size fits yeah. all? How do you, well, uh, the glue sound is that polished, it's on a record sound. How do you? Well, in a, yeah. the, the glue, it, it really is hard to say, what is it like, you know, you know, how do you define pornography? I don't know, but I know it when I see it or something was what the, you know, the old sensors used to say. Yeah. But glue is a sense where, you know, sometimes when you compress a group of things together, and this could be a group of singers, like, oh, we've got 10 singers singing in a choir, a little compressing the whole group together can make things just feel a little bit more connected in a way. And things that feel a little bit more connected generally feel kind of like a record to us in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're looking at glue compressors, um, you know, the uh, a couple of the really famous ones are the um, like the SSL bus compressor, right? And there's a bunch of plugins that emulate that, and there's a bunch of hardware that emulates that in addition to the real one. Uh, I have a Manly Verimu uh, compressor. An actual compressor yeah. versus the plug-in, okay. And um, and that's a tube compressor. And the interesting thing for me is when I'm using that to create glue, I'm maybe compressing half a dB, maybe a dB, not much, but it's going through those tubes and stuff that's sort of helping glue that together. But um, the, the best thing with all of this is you go in and just experiment and do it, spend hours and hours playing with this. But generally with the bus compressor, it's not something that you want to radically change things most of the time. Right. Uh, so we usually leave the attack times a little bit slower. Uh, and that's more important than whether it's an SSL style or some other kind of thing. Attack times a little bit slower. That's going to let a lot of those transient hits get through. So drums will still sound punchy. A lot of people don't understand that. They think, oh, I want to compress the drums. So um, I'm going to go for fast attack, which in theory sounds right. But you do want some of that to come through. Yeah. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it sounds like... Uh, you know, a pencil hitting that Starbucks. Cup. Yeah, it can get and a little too dark and mushy sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, and keeping in the, the longer release times will sound a little smoother and faster release times will make things sound a little bit punchier. Yep. But but really almost um, with a bus compressor, play with it, mess with this stuff. But, you know, just trying to get going. If you have something again, like the SSL bus style compressors are great, you know, put the attack and the release in medium to a couple dB and just see how it feels. Yeah. And then go yeah, crazy don't, don't. and compress it off the meters. And then right. go super fast. And and really the best <laughs> but way... But do that over and over. You yeah. can't just do it once and then go, okay, I've got it. Yeah, and what I recommend is like for this learning, like funk or really punchy rock, things like that are great for learning because you, you do a lot of compression and go super fast on the attack. You're yeah. going to see what that, oh, wow, that just really changed the drums and the tone of the mix on that I slowed it down oh wow it just started opening up and breathing a little bit more you know and so the fast attack or fast release wow it's starting to feel a little more exciting more aggressive slower oh it's starting to smoother and mellow out so a lot of times you mentioned like a Nora Jones if I was doing bus compression on what you know things like her breakthrough album yeah I'd be using kind of slower release times on that bus compressor because I don't want it to sort of get high energy or edgy or anything like that right but yeah, those, but really the, 
there's so many the, the SSL bus style compressor is a great one. There used to be a, a mod you could get on your SSL that just said hit record on that button. <laughs> so it didn't to turn it on it just said hit record. But there's so many um, my SSL didn't have that. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but yeah, there's so many kind of plugins out there that you know everything sounds different, but you can just go in and get and learn it. And if you learn how to work with an SSL style bus compressor, um, everything else will make sense. A lot, will, a lot more yeah. will make sense because it's it's super useful. They generally sound great. Even lots of the plugins sound great. Yeah, I've it's got totally a Waves good good version of it, mm -hmm. and I've got to say, I had an SSL that I used for five years, I mm -hmm. think, and this sounds ninety-five percent as good. It doesn't mm -hmm. sound exact, but it sounds good. Yep. But and also, you know, the the bus compressor to old vintage yeah. <laughs> studios don't sound the same now either. Right. <laughs> Um, I for a period of five and a half years, I also had an MCI uh, 500 series console, mm. and the automation button on it, uh, automation reset, they recap the button uh, SHIT because <laughs> you're always going. Ah. Oh, but the console sounded great. Automation was garbage, but the console sounded great. I didn't love that console. Oh. I hated it. Wow, there you Actually, go. Actually, when the day I got the SSL, I was like, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking SSL over that one. Uh, okay, next question. Uh, do you control the bass guitar tracks level with kick side chaining for rock music? Ah, okay. That's nice, a good question. Nice geeky question. Yeah. Not as much as you might think. Okay. Um, so for me, a lot of times I will, every record is different, but normally if I looked at, you know, the records I've mixed in the last five years, um, I would generally compress bass a lot to get it sort of sit in its place. Um, and uh, usually with just a, a full, full range compressor, but if there is one frequency that's really jumping out or resonating, I might use some band specific, like one band of a multi-band compressor to tone that. Um, and then with my kick drums, which on rock records, again, we're not keeping them very dynamic. We're going to get them to be pretty consistent. And I'm kind of a fan of EQing to get these two things to live together. So rather than trying to get one out of the way of the others dynamically, I, I like to let them both be big. And then with frequency, kind of carve out some space so that the energy of what's the kick drum is not the same place as the energy of the bass. And that way my kick drum can sort of have presence and cut through, and the um, and the low end from the bass can be consistently big and powerful. So some things you, that I'm not listening to a word you're saying. That's right. like, no, that, that's, no, it's all good. We you, all have our job. You, you know all this stuff. So no, not all of it. But the times where I do do it is again, there are situations where maybe you do have like low synths and bass, and you do have to clear out some real estate. So sometimes I will actually have a compressor on the bass or like a low synth. Um, triggered by the kick drum, so it just attenuates that just a little bit, uh, just so the low end isn't too cluttered. Um, and sometimes I actually do the opposite. If if the bass player and the drummer don't play that well together, uh, I'll actually do a trick where I'll put a little bit of a gate on the bass drum, or I'm sorry, on the bass guitar, and just turning it down a couple dB, and I'll have a the kick drum open up that um, gate a little bit so that every time the kick drum is hit the bass actually boosts a little bit and that that will actually make it sound like the drummer and the bass player uh, actually are playing a little tighter together 
So luckily I get to work with a lot of good musicians, so I don't have to resort to that too often. But <laughs> uh, Here's a follow-on question, then I want to go back to a question Paul Smith had about vocals versus instrumental levels. But Brian Steele asks, he's got a bass track uh, that's got 16 RMS, which is root mean square, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of riding in the middle there, the, mm -hmm. the average. Um, uh, but the peak level is approaching clipping. What's the most effective way to reduce the peak level without affecting the RMS? Um, That's pretty geeky. Yeah, that is. <laughs> well, I mean, they're always going to be interrelated when, yeah. you, when you change the dynamic of something. Um, it, about to be old man yelling at clouds. Um, but <laughs> because there's all this information on the Internet, people are starting to worry too much about the, like, it's never even dawned on me to consider the RMS level of my bass. Thank you. And, and I don't mean that in a snotty, dismissive way. Oh, yeah, but, he does. As soon as we're off the show, he's going to say, was exactly. I too snotty or dismissive? No. no but, but that's sort of the thing. Like, um, and, I'm, and I'm not going to criticize somebody if there's reason to care about that. But like, I never really care what the RMS levels are. Where I care about RMS levels and things of that nature are when I'm doing testing and analysis to better understand my equipment okay <laughs> or do kind of fair comparisons against different sources mm -hmm. uh, or at the mastering stage where there's a s specific spec I'm trying to deliver right so beyond that I don't care at all right I mean I plug it in bring up the fader or mm -hmm. bring up the mic pre to like noon or one o'clock which yeah. is kind of the range <laughs> yeah. maybe even three o'clock bring up the fader to zero, the input fader to zero, mm -hmm. and then see if it's like too much level and then to adjust yeah. the threshold on the limiter so, yeah. or the compressor set to three to one in your home. Yeah, and for me, I generally, I generally like working in digital. Yeah. For my peak levels to be about maybe minus six. Okay. Um, and in the mixing stage, try not to get them much above that. So I'll actually go in and adjust levels to keep them more into that range. How did you... I was still working in the studio when they came out with peak meters, and, and you know we're talking late '70s, mm -hmm. early '80s, and, and they weren't that good yet. Mm -hmm. LED technology wasn't that yeah. good yet. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you had little light bulbs in yeah. colored boxes. Uh, I had a very hard time leaving my ballistic um, analog meters, and I think if I were still making records mm -hmm. today, I would use them because that's what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. How did you make the transition going from ballistic? to um, digital meters and getting used to not seeing things tip into the red. Well, again, it's a different thing. And where we use these analog meters are generally on our analog gear, where yeah. those, that's actually more informative in terms of, hey, we're, we're sort of getting into this range. And we know, oh, yeah, once we start driving the inputs of that old MCI tape machine around here, it's going to start to get crunchy and yeah. those sorts of things. Do you know what MCI stood for? Oh, I used to know this joke. Munchy, but, crunchy inside. <laughs> there you go. Um, but the thing is, like, again, I, and I said minus six, but really, like, when I'm tracking, I'm, I'm, usually my peaks are about minus 10. Okay. Um, and you don't even have to worry about that. When you're shooting for these uh, kind of, oh, my peaks are at minus 10. My peaks, loudest thing. Again, yeah. drummer plays for the whole song. That l super loud snare hit one time is getting up to about minus 10. You don't have to worry about super accuracy of any of the meters. Yeah. For the most part, because really on analog you know, or on digital, you know, there's analog components, but it's mostly kind of clean and good, clean and good. Right when you get to the top, ah, starting to crap out a little bit, really, really bad. So I just kind of keep it down in the, oh, sounds really good range the whole time. As opposed to analog, you had to worry about the noise floor of the tape, noise, you know, the yeah. inherent noise and in all the components in the audio chain. 
So you were constantly battling that by going for the highest level you could get to eliminate the, the tape hiss and all the other yeah. sources. And the fact that a lot of the analog tools then and still today actually sounded cool when you hit them really hard. Right. So, and that's not really a factor. You know, I'm trying to get things in mostly clean, like at the conversion stage. I might go through a crunchy preamp or use cool plugins later to do it, but mostly I want to get in clean. So I'm not worrying about this long trip around to say, you know, I don't really care about RMS levels or luffs or any of those things when I'm mixing a record. It's like, nah, these are all in a good range. Let me make them sound cool. Let me make some cool decisions about how they blend together. Right. And, uh, and really the only thing I'm concerned about is I don't really want to go and push my stereo bus too hot. Um, you know, so I'm keeping that a little bit conservative. Do you spell bus B-U-S or B-U-S-S? S-S. Me too. <laughs> yes. And the other day I sent something road rally related off to a staff member who's very smart and great editor. And she took all my double S's off and made them singles. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Yes. So, but yes, yeah, so I don't worry about the RMS at all. So make it sound good. Make sure it blends cool with your track. And uh, But somebody wrote, and I, it's a good question. Okay. Um, Basically, how loud do I mix vocals? That was right, one of the early questions from Paul that, Smith. that came in. Yep. Um, it's a great question. Uh, I don't care at all about RMSs, and there's no number that I can give you that will be of any value to you. Um, but for the most part, depending on the style of music, I'm generally trying to mix the vocals as low as possible. And uh, one of the great... Why? This is so important. <laughs> no, because the thing about it is we as humans tend to calibrate on the human voice. Okay. You know, literally, like, people will adjust their car stereo based on the level of the voice. And there's that level that's kind of comfortable about how we connect with the voice. So if our vocal is really, really high, people are going to turn down that car stereo. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen when they turn down that car stereo to our drums? They're going to go down, 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 down. And uh, all of a sudden they sound wimpy. Okay. So if we can mix our vocals in a way where they're actually inside the uh, instruments, people are going to adjust their volume. They're going to adjust their perception to that lead vocal, which is going to make all our instruments sound really big because they're going to get turned up. And, um, and this is really key. So we're going to do tricks like muting things and panning, mm -hmm. you know, panning and EQ to create space for that vocal. So it's not like we don't want to hear the vocal. We still want to hear the vocal. We still want it to feel present. Um, but we want to create space so we can mix that as low as possible. Because the lower we can mix the record, I mean, lower we can mix the vocal, the bigger the record sounds. And a lot of times, if you go and actually study records, like, a, you know, like a student, like a scientist, you'll be amazed. Like, you know, one of my favorite examples is listen to Tool, and I think their singer's one of the best singers in modern rock, you know, of my lifetime. Man, those vocals are mixed low on those records. Interesting. And those records sound massive. But if you go listen to, like, some of Janet Jackson's big hits, uh, you know, great vocalist, beautiful vibe, and they've got her mixed a lot of times really low. They've sometimes boosted the top, so there's a sizzly thing on top that sort of sneaks through. Mm -hmm. But so much music where you know, where you want people to really feel it, which is like hard rock, which is disco, which is funk, which is EDM. Uh, you'd be amazed how Kick, low- snare, and guitar. How low people are mixing that because when you put the vocal in low, people will turn everything up. 
and it sounds bigger. I, they, they've caught on, but I mean, I used to make you know a lot of money at mixed records, like over in Italy, I was doing a bunch of stuff, and they're like, oh, Italian engineers suck. They don't know how to mix cool <laughs> rock records. And you know, I'm like, okay. And I'm listening to them going, no, these engineers don't suck at all. There's, this is really well done. The difference is culturally, Italian, you find the same in sort of Latin America as well. The, especially 15, 20 years ago, was to mix the vocal really, really loud and put a bunch of reverb on it. Mm. And in the UK and the United States, our trend was more in terms of a little less reverb on that, pulling the vocal down. So like our records had that big rock power and the Italian engineers had no, had it, couldn't, didn't have the skills to do it. It's like, yeah, they had the skills to do it. They could turn that vocal down, but culturally, the labels, right. the labels were saying, turn up the, <laughs> you know, turn up the vocal. You know, vocals got to be really loud, and the, by default, the records didn't sound as big and powerful as, you know, coming from the UK or Sweden or. <laughs> that cultural aspect is a, is a bigger deal than people really understand. Yes. everybody's looking for a prescription for everything. Yes. How do I get a bass sound? How do I get a guitar sound? How do I mix a record to sound like a record? Yeah. And all this stuff, they're all variables depending on the type of music, the genre of music, the the singer's approach, the dynamics of a particular song, the key it's in can yeah. have a remarkable effect. Something that's in a higher key is gonna have less bottom. And you have to figure out where the sweet spot is on the bass in order to, something that's recorded in uh, you know, key of F is not going to sound um, the bass. The way you treat the bass is going to sound different than how you're going to treat something that's in the key of A. Mm -hmm. uh, but but people think there's a magic button or a magic prescription or a a, 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 a preset so, um, that solves every one of these problems. And this is something I'm going to say, and it'll prevent me from being at the taxi road rally going, oh, come Why did I say this? No, no. Oh. Because there's a thing, again, I, I love I love being at the rally. I'm not just saying that because you're here. But it's great, and I love like checking out like a chance to hear a lot of people's music when I do sort of the mentoring and some of the drive-by and all of that. I'll hear this stuff, and you know it happens a lot, and it happens all over the world, but taxis where it just gets funneled in. And somebody will play me something, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is you know an EDM track that I did. And I'll listen to it going, okay, it's not an issue of this is, is this objectively good or bad. But I'll ask, like, so what EDM do you listen to? And they're like, I, I don't really listen to EDM. And it's like, and it really shows. And, so, um, and, and the thing about that is, you know, we don't even – have to like what we like but it's the kind of thing like oh the reverbs they used or the patterns that they used on the snare drum i'm all. gonna do cubist art but i've never looked at any it's it's kind of that way yeah. and and it's such a huge mistake especially in a situation like taxi where so many people are trying to create for libraries or create things that oh you know where their track might get used for somebody something too expensive in the genre by one of the big stars right you know it, it, for a weird thing i mean i've been doing mixing a lot of music um for amount last year from the democratic republic of congo as one does and you know i'm not as very few do <laughs> and the thing is i didn't grow up listening to music from the democratic republic of congo why not i know i didn't i didn't even listen to any on the drive over See, here you gotta be careful today. when you say stuff like that because somebody's liable to say you're a racist but no, no but it has it, nothing to do with it no but it really has nothing to do with it i mean i listened there's you know i yeah i know there's parts of africa with amazing music including the democratic republic of congo is um, um if you had to 
call the genre or style, give it a name, what would it? I mean, it, it's sort of dancey pop stuff, but based on a lot of the more regional rhythms and subdivisions that we don't have. Yeah. But I mean, like Afrobeat. But yeah, I mean, it, it's okay. definitely sort of a very close cousin of that. But again, they've got different phrasing and rhythm. But when I'm when I'm approached to mix a bunch of music from the Democratic Republic of Congo, I'm on the internet. And Listen. I'm going in, I'm digging, like, wh who's hot in the Democratic Republic of Congo? You know, and I'm trying to listen to that stuff. And all of a sudden you go, wow, like, could be something like and in any part of the world, like, wow, all these kick drums sound like. <laughs> Interesting. Right. So if you, and that doesn't mean that they suck and they don't know what they're doing. If you had a classic doing. 808, it would sound completely out of context. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, it wow, terrible. like, wow, the biggest stars in the world, you know, or, you know, in, in that genre. A lot of their records have these really tiny kick drums. So, so when I'm pulling up the kick drum track and it sounds like that, it's, like, it's not like, oh, this guy or gal was a bad engineer. It's like, oh, this is the vibe of it. I could go in and fix it yeah. to my, you know, my California, Italy dude, whatever <laughs> bias. Um, but I'm going in and I'm studying how, how hot, hot are they mixing vocals? Yeah. You know, do they have a lot of reverb or do they tend to be dry? And the same thing too, like, hey, I'm supposed to do some drum and bass thing, okay. Where are they putting kick drums? I made that mistake uh, first because I, you know, started my career in South Florida. First mm -hmm. time I worked with a legit reggae band from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Within ten minutes, they wanted me off the session, mm -hmm. and the reason was I tried to make their bass and kick drums sound like a pop record. That yeah, right, the guys the criteria would typically make. Yeah. and one of our fellow staffers named Alex Sadkin ducked in the control room and said bass needs to sound puffier <laughs> yeah yeah and so it's that same sort of thing and even even a more thing like the top of the country charts right now don't sound like the top of the country charts 10 years ago so even if you're you know somebody who's been listening to country for your whole life and that's what you love and you've got these imprints of when you really studied your favorite records from 10 years ago mm -hmm. they could be the best records ever but if you're trying to do something that's a little that fits in with what's happening right now. It's, it's a big issue. It's yeah. going to listen to it. So yeah. super, super important. It costs you zero. Again, that's one of the great things about YouTube and different streaming services. We can actually go and look at, you know, Botswana. We can look at, you know, Trinidad and find out who's hot and um, what are they doing in their mixes. Um, somebody asked how you pick, what's the best way to pick references? Whatever the current hits are. In the genre, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, there's no other magical formula for it. How do you handle routing in your DAW, your DAW, uh, when printing master and stems, so that when all the mastered stems are reassembled, it sounds like the primary master? Uh, sidechain the mix bus, uh, compressing sidechain the mix bus, compressing compressor and limiter? Question mark. Oh, okay. So there, there's the question. I had a little hard time understanding. Okay, well, let, let's go ahead and, and uh, I'm actually about to make a video on this, and Bob Clear Mountain's done one too. Um, people need to know, and I think whoever put wrote that got it right. Dave Merkel. Dave, but um, stems versus tracks. Mm -hmm. This is a crazy. I have no idea why this started happening, but a track is an individual track. Here's the hi hat. Here's here's top of the rack tom, here's bottom of the rack tom, here's lead vocal. So your tracks or your multi-tracks are all these individual things. Right. Uh, a stem is a mix of a group of those tracks. So a stem could be instrumental stem, everything but the vocal. Mm -hmm. A stem could be your horn section. 
A stem could be your drums. But a stem is a mixed subgroup of these elements. And this is worth harping on because, you know, I, I even... Now, why do they call them stems and not subgroups? Because back in my day, yeah. which was a long time ago, <laughs> people called them a subgroup. But, okay. but, uh, but you, and you print out stems and a lot of times, and this is great, and you should be thinking about this if you're looking to pitch your stuff to libraries and stuff. So, you know, all of a sudden, have, go ahead and, you know, do a mix that's just your drums, just your bass, just your guitars just the solo instruments. At the levels they were in the context yes. of the whole mix. That's really yeah. important. And the idea is that when you, if you import those into a DAW, new DAW session and line them up, you should have pretty much the mix. Um, and But this is super important. I just worked on a project, you know, and this is, you know, on a big multi-million dollar project. And, you know, the, my point person there was mixing up the use of, he's like, hey, I'm going to send you stems. Mm. And he wasn't. He was going to send me multi-tracks. And uh, so it's really important because getting that wrong can really create problems. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if somebody says, hey, we're going to do this Atmos mix off stems. You think, okay, great. I'm going to have maybe, you know, 8 to 15 stereo pairs show up in this. Right. And then As all of a sudden. to 57 individual tracks. Yeah. So it's, again, and, and some young people be like, oh, you're just old dinosaur. You don't like the, no, it's not. It's like, I would say like, hey, you know. There's a difference between a vegetable and a salad. A salad is a bunch of stuff thrown in together. You know, a carrot is not a salad. <laughs> they're, right. just, it's, they're just different things. So I think where his question was going is um, when you do that, um, you know, talking about mastering the stems, um, one, my take on things is you shouldn't, when you're mixing, you shouldn't pretend you're mastering. You should never do anything. Mm -hmm. Think about mastering. If you're if you're trying to master something while well, he's you mix, talking about, it, he's elaborating now, saying yeah. if you master the stem separately, dear God, no. Um, I would I would recommend no. And um, but what is the interesting thing about this is if you are doing a lot of aggressive dynamic processing or even saturation type things on your stereo bus, yeah. Um, you know if you if you send your your whole rock band mix to your stereo bus and it's going to hit a compressor at a certain level right and so you know and it's now all going up and down together yeah bass and drums out as a stem it's going to be different yeah because your lead vocal is going to do this right based on the drum yeah but you'll never be able to really match uh, the compression on bass and drums that would be in the context of the yes. mix with the vocal affecting it yeah. so the problem is that when you reassemble all those parts yeah. where you've done them individual mastering on each yeah. one it's not going to sound like yeah, so, so what I'm doing is generally when I know that I'm going to be delivering something in stems is I'm what I'm doing actually on my stereo bus with dynamics is usually very subtle. Um, and But I'll still EQ curves or saturation, those kind of things. Uh, I'll do it. And then mastering should always, in my opinion, should always be a separate session. Mm -hmm. And so then I can look at, you know, pulling in these, if I am going to master from stems, I can pull those in and you know make those decisions um and and that could be a situation where i am doing you know a bus of all the stems blended together or applying something across individual stems so it's a all these things are trade-offs and compromises to, right. to suit this and you're desire also to a highly trained engineer that can use your ears without being too cerebral or scientific about mm -hmm. it. just use your ears to go that will work when i put frankenstein mm -hmm. back together yep. Um, it'll sound pretty much like yeah. the glue that I had on yeah. the mix bus. Yeah. 
somebody without your years of experience would have to work long and hard to, to learn that. But for the most part, where you're going, where your stems are going to be useful is there's a good chance they're not going to want them necessarily mastered mm -hmm. uh, unless it's sort of like an instrumental stem, which is an instrumental mix. They might want that. But where stems are going to be useful are one is if you have to sort of remix uh, on the fly or this is in television, they want to rebalance something. Yeah, most of the time it's going to be an editor working on a reality show or a TV and show. They would, and they probably would rather not you have mastered everything up to, you know, well, master levels. And, and they're but, not going to affect the audio much, maybe, mm -hmm. other than putting a reverb tail on something when a door slams or something. But they, they just want to, like... The track is what I want melodically mm -hmm. and, and kind of vibey and spiritual, yep. spiritually, yep. but it's too thick, too many instruments. Yep. So they would want to take out like the keyboard stems. And where you will find a lot too is they might say, they might ask to deliver the stems and they're like, oh, that's a beautiful saxophone solo, but this is also a really important conversation going on between right. our two characters to be able to mute that. So if you've sent them a bunch of things that are mastered, that actually makes life on the dub stage more difficult. Or an edit bay at three in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those guys, they most of them don't have the ears, nor do they have the experience um, to do that. You know, mm -hmm. so they are literally eliminating stuff to make the track less thick, or take the sax out because the vocals really important. Things like that. They're not audio engineers. Yeah, but the great thing about doing stems, if you are going to do them, and again, don't do things that are super aggressive is you've got opportunities for remixing or repurposing down the road. And you might be working in Logic today, but then three years from now, you're working in Nuendo on a PC. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, we love that thing, but we can't have it with that saxophone solo. Or, hey, do you have that, you know, a yeah. mix of that with the drums lower? You can just pull up this folder, import it into Nuendo, and, you know, you can create what they want, you know, in a 15-minute session and have it uploaded to the music supervisor right away versus, oh, I've got to track down my old Logic session, all those old plugins. So that's one of the great things about, you know. Oh, man. Uh, Give me two-inch tape. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever process the direct electric guitar signal oops, uh, to mix it with the amp signal? Almost never. Okay. Um, almost never. Um, and uh, I used to record, like, uh, clean and amp a lot, and then I would just almost never use it. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm a I love real amps. I'm I, I find most of the amp emulators problematic. Um, hmm. Nothing against if other people love them and it gets them what they want, but I find it so much easier to make guitars sound big on records and complementary to the other instruments with traditional miking. So the one thing I do love about things showing up with direct sounds is I can actually reamp them. I've got mm -hmm. good amp collection. And tell everybody what reamping is. So reamping is if you've recorded the guitar direct in, uh, I can actually spit that out and with a little box, convert that into an instrument level signal and run that into a guitar amp. And then I can mic it and I can put in any kind of pedals I want and so um, and get some really cool sounds. I just did a thing I can, I think as of yesterday, I'm allowed to talk about it publicly. But I just worked on this really cool thing. It's a companion record for the new um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it's really cool music. But um, so I got approached to mix it. And it's a producer and composer I'd worked with before. And we're both guitar geeks. But, you know, he had sent me, you know, 
mic'd up guitars, but also a direct sound mm -hmm. on everything. And I was able to go and with reamping, step the game up a little bit more because I've got really good tools for that. And it's one area I happen to have some degree of expertise. So we were able to get these amazing guitar sounds by having that direct sound. Yeah. But I almost never blend them. There's two, two reasons for that. One is I just rarely like that direct sound. Uh, but you also need to keep in mind that there's certain um, phase, phase differences. Yeah, yeah it's uh, especially if you've used a relamp. If you've just done it with plugins, they're most likely going to be more aligned. But that was a long way to say I don't really. <laughs> I, I can say it the short way, which is in all the years I sat behind consoles, I don't think I ever combined the two signals. Yeah, it just didn't sound as good as the mm -hmm. end. I was I was just telling Tom on our staff here a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago. Um, I just couldn't get a guitar sound that the guitar player liked on a record. When he was happy, I wasn't. When I was happy, mm -hmm. he wasn't. Finally, I just took a pig nose, mm -hmm. a pig, little baby pig nose amp, and stuck it on a chair and put yep. a 57 in front of it, compressed the living crap out of it. <laughs> Sounded awesome, made it to the record. Yep. So <laughs> don't overthink it. All right, let's find another question. Somebody that followed the rules and actually put the word question in all caps. I love when you do that. makes it so easy to spot. Uh, Everybody's into your puffy bass comment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Oh, I see Robbie's getting grief for not capitalizing question. Uh, <laughs> how much and what kinds of reverb are you adding to contemporary mixes? I've noticed a lot more over the last few years uh, compared to seven or eight years ago. Types of reverb, pre-delay, etc. Okay. Um, yeah, for it is shifting back for we had like fifteen years there where like records were almost bone dry. Yeah, I didn't like that. <laughs> I like it sometimes, not all the time. Yeah, but um, so but yeah, it's definitely shifting back. Um, the the funny thing is, I mean, I, I've got good outboard, so a lot of times in my mixing process, you know, I don't have a console anymore, but I do have a lot of cool outboard, and I'll send things out and blend them back in. So I've got everything from like custom made spring reverbs to lexicon reverbs and uh, different things so a lot of times i'm i'm using those um i never get too caught up in is this does this say plate or does this say hall or does something like right does oh, it yeah. just sound good in the context of this record is yeah. more important and so but in a in a workflow where a lot more stuff is happening in the box a lot of times um there's a, the probably one of my two mo most used reverbs now is there's a reverb called Valhalla Plate. Mm -hmm. I think it's $49. Um, Mick Gazowski turned me on to it the year he won Grammy for Best Engineering for that I, Daft Punk I got record. It. They gave it away for free one weekend, yeah. and I got a free one. Yeah, so Valhalla Plate is probably one of my most used reverbs. It just... Um, Sounds when, good out of the box. Yeah, and when I first started using it, I was it was actually a video game called Mafia 3. <laughs> and we, great video game, but we tracked in two different studios. One like Oceanway Nashville, yeah. which we had like a huge collection of plates. And I ran stuff through and printed it all back. And then one of the House of Blues studios for the other half that just had some old rinky-dink, half-busted reverb. And so we didn't have any of the real things. And so on that one, I had used Valhalla Plate instead of the real ones, and nobody's ever listened to the, the soundtrack uh, score for that and go, oh, the reverbs sound great there. <laughs> I huh? would now. <laughs> now that I know. Yeah, I'll, I'll try uh, it. Yeah, you, I'll give you 10 bucks if you can tell me which is which. <laughs> um, but yeah, Mafia 3 soundtrack, it, you can stream it. It's fantastic. It's great music. Um, but that one, and also um, IK Multimedia, they've got a new 
emulation of the sunset uh, sound reverb chambers, which are wow. really, really good. Um, and so those are the two I use a lot. And those you can actually switch between their chambers and the studio and the yeah. impulse response kind of things. But I don't get too tied up in that whole business of is this a plate? Is this um, a hall? Is this a room? Because really, in the digital domain, it's a bunch of ones and zeros. And I'm going for, oh, I want to make this darker. I want to make this longer. I want to make this yeah. more diffused. I, I, so. I've got... Um logic and the standard plate reverb that comes with logic sounds perfectly usable mm -hmm. you know you don't have to be a genius to use it it just sounds great out of the box i don't know if i ever told you this but when i worked at howard schwartz recording in new york we bought the plates that phil ramon bought oh, nice. from phil specter mm -hmm. so the last two years i worked in new york i had phil specter's plates nice. that made it on all, all of his hits yeah. and, and a real plate really is a beautiful thing but i'm kind hard of to maintain and yeah. hard to be you know you can <laughs> um, depending on the humidity in the room it could sound like yeah. this today and like that tomorrow yeah. but on a on a side side note of this i'm almost always eqing my reverbs yeah i'm almost usually the sense of the returns yes Okay. I mean, and kind of depends on the sound, but right. for quick and dirty returns more right. often than not. Um, so usually I'm almost always cutting the high end off of them Yeah. because when you have lots of high end on your reverbs, uh, it draws the listener's ear to them. Mm -hmm. So you can't really get away with creating as much space without them going, oh, it's, it's 1983, what's going on here? <laughs> um, and also I'm cutting out a lot of the low end because when it you've rumbles, got this yeah. big buildup of low end mush, well, that's just gonna that's just fighting my kick drum. That's fighting the clarity of my bass guitar, and, and beca because it's constantly changing is the nature of reverb. Yep. It's changing the phase relationships yep. on the on the bottom end, so yeah. it's inconsistent. Yeah, and I'm usually trying to scoop out a little too around my vocal, like if I'm using it on vocals, so mm -hmm. that it doesn't mud the vocal. So I'm kind of creating space around the vocal more than just smushing up on top of it. I like when I hear stuff that go, yeah, I used to do that. <laughs> All right, let's grab another one. We need a campfire marshmallows. Wow. All right, um, down with that. Let's see. What are the telltale signs of an amateur mix, in your opinion? Ooh. Ooh, yeah. So, good question. I'll just see if I can answer it off the top of my head. Um, number one, doing reverbs wrong for the genre. Mm -hmm. And again, I say wrong just based on, hey, we're trying to make this sound like a new metal record or, or a contemporary R&B or a 1960s <laughs> pop tune. Uh, a lot of people will just sort of splash on reverb that's just got the wrong vibe, like, oh, it's way too long or it's way too short or it's way too bright. So the first thing that will jump out is um, that reverb just done incorrectly for the goal that they were probably trying to go for. Again, if, they're, if that wacky, crazy, wrong reverb is their artistic vision as an artist, yes, you have my full support, go for it. Yeah. But a lot of times people, especially again in taxi where there's so many opportunities to pitch things for specific styles or genres, that's really important. Um, another big thing is, um, and this is probably enough to say the other telltale sign is, Amateurs tend to be wimpier about stuff. <laughs> they tend to be more cautious. Um, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to do more than half a dB of compression. When, you know, the top mixers in the world are going, eh, whatever, 30 dB, sure, <laughs> let's yeah. do it. Also things like, you know, kick, like kick drums or snare drums. 
like uh, sometimes you'll hear something that's a pop tune or something and the kick drum is mixed really back and kind of low in the mix you can Ooh. hear it and, and again not wrong but then you compare it to what is actually going on in the top <laughs> you know what what are the hit makers doing what are the top people even if you're into weird obscure stuff what are the coolest guys and gals in that genre doing yeah and so many of the times they're doing much more aggressive vocal boom in your face like kick like kick and snare like they're really driving it and not all the time but that really is one of the things where i so many times like and i'm sure i'll hear it this weekend somebody say hey what do you think of this rock mix and i'm thinking well stuff is balanced i can hear everything but it doesn't have that sonic hell yeah yeah <laughs> um that i would get if this had been sent off to one of the you know big bigger mixers in the world the bigger mixer would have sent it back probably with that kick drum being more aggressive or that kick drum subservient and the bass growly and distorted you know it's most of the hits have elements about them that are a little bit dangerous <laughs> and and very polite mixes don't really seem to resonate with people who buy records or <laughs> or download so if stuff you were, if you were looking if you were a young lady looking to date a guy you'd want a guy with some tattoos and a motorcycle <laughs> I, I get it there's yeah. excitement there you know or somebody who wears flamboyant renaissance clothing or there you, go. you know or somebody who looks like you know Right. You know, there's a, a, a cartoon farmer. There's something that says, you know, there's something that says, yeah, this is exciting. This draws it in because again, you, you're for art. You're allowed to do anything the heck you want. Yeah, right? I strongly encourage it. But if you listen to the most successful people in most genres of music, um, is things tend to be a little exciting, a little aggressive, a little cool in some way. And really, the almost the only genre where that's not happened is the people who are making records specifically for the audiophile market yeah and um they're they're just listening to music in a completely different Is way rudy than van gelder still alive I, no no i think he passed away yeah. a few years ago uh he, he was an engineer that did a lot of directed disc stuff they would literally come uh, you know like not use a console go through mm. very esoteric, esoteric preamps um and just incredible gear and then go right to the mastering lathe and make stuff on vinyl he was doing that back in the late 60s early 70s um nowadays and uh, not and, he, and he's never been topped to me yeah you listen to his work on john coltrane's a love Oof. supreme um i just i've never heard a jazz record that stopped yeah. it sonically and musically Pretty incredible stuff. Uh, I have a question for you. Um, today, the kids will combine 55 snare drums uh, to get the snare sound they want. And I just, uh, you know, on its face to me, that's ridiculous. It's like, stick a microphone on it, probably a 57 about that far away from the head, give it a little bit of compression maybe, you know, and, and roll out a little lower mids, add a little bottom, add a little top. It's gonna sound great. Mm -hmm. Are you a guy that will mix 55 snare samples together to get your sound, or are I, you I, more of a mic I, it and... Mm, well, I never, I've never gotten up to 55. Um, but that said, on a plug, you can go to drumrecordingbootcamp.com and uh, uh, actually don't go there. Um, I'm gonna sell. I'm gonna sell it like at a massive discount at the road rally. So don't go there. Okay. If you want it, taxi road rally November third through the sixth. <laughs> But, you know, there's a difference. It's it's not uncommon for me to layer things, like to layer samples into uh, acoustic kits. But a lot of this stuff is, like, in pop and EDM, they are sort of creating this, you know, 50 <laughs> snare drums to create that. Yeah. 
and and honestly, I I think that's just. I'm going to say it's ridiculous, but not in a way that's intended to be dismissive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have that many different things going on, nothing's really getting brought to the table by any of them because there's so much competition within and, that. And if, and do you deserve to make records if your ears aren't good <laughs> enough to get the sound you want by dialing it in with EQ and compression? But, but even, again, a lot of pop and EDM, your, your source material yeah. samples. Um, and uh, or even a lot of rock records where they're you know metal records, right. and so it's not crazy to go oh you know even if I'm because you know, I I do kind of EDM stuff for fun like that's kind of my I'm gonna wind down and do EDM um, after mixing rock records but um, it, but it's not crazy to go oh yeah here is a a snare drum that goes cat 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 let's blend that with a snare drum that goes goom 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 and maybe something that's got a little meat. So all of a sudden, like combining two, three, four elements, you actually can, you do have creative options that are different than if you just tried to do it with one, uh, one sample. Um, so it, that's totally valid. But once you start going six, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah. it's I, I, there's so much competition that nothing really stands out. It seems to me like a fool's errand. I don't understand how that could be. Do you know? When you go watch fireworks on the 4th of July, and there's always that one that's really concussive and percussive. Mm-hmm. The really, so one year, uh, Shirelli and I have gone to 4th of July of fireworks for most, more years than not. And we talked about one year we actually grabbed a sample of it, and he took it home and, and nice. truncated the front and the back end. I can't wait someday to combine that because it literally sounds like probably what, like, you know, a 357 Magnum <laughs> being shot by your ear yep. sounds like the, the the amount of dynamics in that thing yep. and the amount of real bottom end in it, scary. <laughs> if I ever find I know it's somewhere on this laptop. If I find it, I'll send it to you. Good. It's cool. All right. Uh, let's find another one where somebody actually put the word question. I'd like to have Ronan's opinion on audio calibration software and corrective EQ if they're worth it, especially in home studio setups. That's a yes, really good question. That is a good question. And I'm going to assume that he's talking about speaker calibration software. Mm-hmm. Um, I have kind of mixed feelings on that. Um, but one of the things that I <clears throat> would encourage you before you start doing that is spend some time with placement. Uh, like you move your speakers six inches closer to the wall. <laughs> Don't do what I did on my yeah. desk here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, move them closer to the wall. Move them a little closer to you. Spread them out. Try and do as much as you can without that, um, without that uh, calibration software. Yeah, and just so you guys know, the calibration software basically blows pink noise into the monitors. I mean, they've got it for white noise. Pink noise is probably the most frequently yeah, used. Yeah, they do to sweeps, actually. Yeah. A lot of them it's commonly done with sweeps now, the same concept. And these microphones that are as flat as they come, and basically you try and get the spectrum at all frequencies to be flat so that your room, all things are equal. Mm-hmm. Everything is flat. But here's something I would recommend all of you do if you're complete nerds. And this will, if you listen to me, you'll prove that you're a complete nerd. But it's worth doing. Whatever DAW you have will have some kind of signal generator plug-in. I think in Pro Tools they just call it signal generator. Um, and 
run that through your speakers and pick something like 70 hertz. Mm -hmm. and, and just play that at a pretty, pretty high volume through your speakers and walk around your room. Yeah. So you walk around the room and then like duck down, get up on your toes. Uh, unless your room is like a well, you know, really well treated basketball <laughs> uh, arena, you're going to hear that going all over the place. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear it getting really loud at some points and then really quiet at other parts, almost disappearing at some parts of the room. And so you go and listen and where, where did it go away? Where did it feel really loud? Okay, great. Now go to 80 hertz and do the same thing and walk around to that same places. Yeah. Did it go away or get loud in the same spots? No, nope. it's completely different. So the reason for mentoring this, and it's worth doing even though it might break your heart a little bit, um, is if we have corrective EQ software, it's going to correct for this point where the, um, where the microphone is. And there's some systems that will like average out from different spaces. But what the corrective software things are doing is they are correcting for a specific spot in the room. So literally, you could get it to where you're here and it's great. But here, it's a mess if they've done any radical cutting. It's so obvious. Behind the green screen, I've got a pair of NS10s. <laughs> when I flip around and listen to something on the NS10s from like three feet away, I've got them tuned so they sound great, just using the bass, treble, and mid-range controls on my stereo. Uh, sound great. If I sit on the other side of the desk, which is probably, what, 40 inches deep, something mm -hmm. like that, um, sounds completely and utterly different. So, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, my, my main mastering speakers, you know, they're big BMFs with dual 15 subs and monsters. Wow. But, um, and I do actually have DSP EQ built into the back of them. But mostly what I'm doing there is not so much correcting for room, but just correcting for anomalies of the speakers. So a little, you know, usually like near the crossover point, they can sometimes get a little boost. So you do a little dip there. But so again, long-winded answer for a very simple question. Mm -hmm. But I would say don't rule those out, but try and get things in your room uh, better without. I, I would much rather spend money on some acoustic treatments and not not foam stuff but real things with fiberglass or mineral wool in them and spend the money there and not have eq correction biggest the first step everybody should take is take a moving blanket and roll it up and shove it underneath the desk or table that it's sitting mm -hmm. on you'll be shocked by how much a moving blanket can do because so much when you've got your speakers on a desk pushed up against a wall you get this bottom end buildup and it's happening down by your feet mm -hmm. throw a moving blanket down yeah and mark chimed in about you know important to know your room and that's absolutely true so again be be cautious with calibration software i don't want to rule it out but be cautious and try and get think if there's ways to fix it before then do it but also really really know your room real like listen to tons and tons of records you love mm -hmm in where you sit in the mix. If you have a couch in the back of the room, listen to tons of records you love from that position. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, no rooms are perfect. You know, Abbey Road is not perfect. You know, <laughs> the old Oceanway studios are not perfect. My room is pretty damn good, but it's not perfect. Um, so everything's got anomalies. So you get, just got to really get to know it uh, in a way. And the best way to do that is spend tons and tons of time listening to records you know really, really well. Really, really well. Yeah. Steely Dan Asia is my go-to. And, yeah. and 
I would much rather trust my own knowledge of that record and my own ears rather than doing sweeps of pink noise um, just because I know that record. Yeah, and one thing on this too is there's a program called Room EQ Wizard. It's free if you join some free group, I think. But they will actually, with a microphone, you can run your own sweeps and test in a room. And the cool thing about that is you put the mic on a stand and run the sweeps and then move that microphone back a foot yeah and do it again and you can actually see improvements in your linearity or it gets worse move your speakers back two feet and you can actually go and see like you know you can actually choose a position where it is as close to linear as possible but again like you for me it's a record called trouble at the hen house by the tragically hip um i i take that record all over the world and anytime i'm working in a new room you know i, you should sound like I sit down i play it anytime i want to test a new set of headphones or speakers trouble of the hen house by the tragically hip yeah. comes out i listen to it and go five little, minutes okay good yeah, let's little get honky to, up there yep. a little fat on the bottom down there yep, yep. let's get to work yeah. you know another mistake people make and i'm saying this as i'm looking at a pair of monitors on my office desk which is actually a medium-sized dining room table um, and I've got a pair of Yamaha MSP7s propped up with Robin Frederick's books tilting them up at me. Which um, is the secret, Robin's books are yeah, really Yeah, but at least I used identical <laughs> books on both sides. Anyway, um, a lot of people don't recognize that when you're using setting up a home studio, get the speakers to the level of your face, number one. Literally three inches down or three inches too high makes a huge difference. The and the other, tweeters are the part of the speaker that you should be... On a big speaker, right. usually the tweeters kind of wear. And have the tweeters to... on the outside yep. will yep. give you much better spatial um, definition. Um, bass is non-directional. You know, it's big and woofy. What is it? Low mm -hmm. E is like a 33-foot wave or something like that. So work with your um, woofers in the middle and your tweeters on the outside and get the speakers there. And just those simple little things will make a world of difference even though I haven't done it yet because I wasn't <laughs> sure if I was keeping these, but now I love them. And the bummer is here in my office, I can't put them up where they should be because I'd be blocking the people that come in for meetings. So. ISO acoustic stands. Yeah. It's a little plug. Yeah. I've, I've got, I've used them on a bunch of speakers and sometimes they weren't an improvement. Other times they were miraculous and they're like a hundred bucks for a pair. Yeah. So worth checking out. <laughs> we need rubber covers on the Robin books. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right now I'm sure that my uh, di old dining room table is acting as a resonator. Yeah. Um, okay, next question. How are we doing on time? Well, wow, 12 minutes left. Uh, have you ever mixed a classical chamber music recording? Did you use compression on it at all? That's a good question. Um, yes, I actually used to do um, tons of classical and chamber music and actually Wednesday, I'm actually recording a 20-piece string section for a film score. Um, but um, yes, absolutely. And it, it kind of depends on where this wants to go in terms of do you use compression or not. Um, but, uh, you know, where a lot of people will, that will get used is, you know, sometimes in film, in game, in situations like that. And that's almost always going to get even somewhat aggressive compression. Um, if it is just a music for music, um, I'll, I definitely won't be aggressive, 
but <clears throat> but a lot of times is um, I will use it, but not with the same kind of aggressive attack and release times that I would use, or even the same ratios I would use on a rock record. Right. So a lot of times, like 1.5 to 1 kind of ratios, slow attack, slow release. Because um, the thing is that full dynamic of, you know, a good chamber orchestra isn't something that really fully translates to the way most people will get to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, so, Unless they're an audiophile in an yeah. audiophile Yeah, and again, that's a very specific niche. Um, so, but I will, you know, especially, um, well, there's two, two ways that I will do it. One is, um, you know, if there's something that just gradually, the long crescendos, you know, I might have it. So it's starting to tuck that in just the top of it. Or also if it's a situation where there is sort of like uh, hard transient percussion, mm -hmm. that's a situation where I might be inclined to use some more um, aggressive compression with faster attacks. Because, you know, just like hitting wood blocks, tick, 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 super fast transients. And so all of a sudden, you know, there might be just a couple of those hits in a whole 13-minute piece of music. Right. Well, we need, if I want to keep full dynamic range, you know, I have to turn everything down. I might have to turn the whole piece down. To accommodate that one You know, one 12 thing. dB for that one hit. And yeah. In a perfect world, I think the question was specifically about uh, mixing. Um, you know, in a perfect world, if I've got spot mics uh, on the percussion I can be a little bit more aggressive with those and then a little less aggressive on on the bus because you know you don't want <laughs> the whole orchestra to right. you know or chamber orchestra to move up and down with that but if I can and that might even might be a situation if there is just a thing where there's one piece written you know this fortissimo part on on wood blocks you know I'll might even just go in and like automate those down Who's the, I want to say Hoagie Carmichael? One of the famous composers had stuff like that where it'd be really, you know, like the quiet part of Peter and the Wolf and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, boom! Yep. <laughs> Every time I hear it, I think, man, that engineer had his work cut out. Yeah, and especially when those original, the way most people would experience those were on vinyl. Yeah. Which vinyl has, you know, vinyl's lovely in its own right, but it has a really limited dynamic range. Because if it's if it's too much range, the needle will pop out of the grooves. Yeah, or start distorting on something like that. They'll go into distortion really quickly. Yep. So they'll you know. Or it'll print through to the other side of the vinyl because the grooves are too <laughs> deep, and they you have two grooves facing each other with the the vector in the middle. Yeah. yeah. In our digital world, we're, we have things a whole lot easier to address those challenges. <laughs> All right, uh, a couple more questions. Um, was wondering what something like mix needs more energy means. So when you talk about a certain part of a mix having energy, um, can you give a little more clarity on that? Yes. Um, there's, um, I think we're talking about, well, there's two ways to look at energy. One is when we're geeking out and being engineers, there's specifically something has more energy. When we actually do talk about RMS levels or peak levels, we are actually talking about energy or, you know, voltage or it's <laughs> But you get to the point. A, a highly experienced professional engineer doesn't actually even think about, yeah. you know, it's not like, hmm, this has more energy, therefore yeah. I'm going to do this. Yeah. It's and, just to instinctively turn a yeah. knob to solve the problem. Yeah, and the times where I do, I'm thinking like, oh my God, I would love this bass to be insanely massive on this. But, you know, my intellectual brain does go, 
well, we can only have so much energy pushing into that final mm -hmm. stereo bus, so uh, a little wimpier bass is going <laughs> to win the day. But also, but when we talk about emotional energy, just what gets us, uh, gets us exciting? And um, I had a went to a little workshop thing that uh, Chris Lord Algie did, who's you know, who's great and the most successful mixer of all time. And uh, I noticed a funny thing when he's kind of demonstrating. Uh, I think he only really only adjectives he really used were like you know, exciting, boring. <laughs> See, this makes it exciting. That's boring. And he wasn't talking about, oh, you, there's more spectral content here. There's more, you know, this subtle decay of this. He's like, here, look, if you crank that bejesus out of this, it's exciting. You don't, it's boring. So, but excitement is that thing that make, makes us exciting. Like, you know, when you create subdivisions, you know, those more subdivisions is a little bit more exciting, creates energy. And we can do that thing sometimes sounding more distorted which technically is creating more energy in the upper harmonics of it. Aren't you amazed? Back in my day, again, back in horse and buggy days, um, we worked so hard to make things sound natural and get and distortion was the enemy. And now <laughs> I listen to even like theme songs on major TV shows, mm -hmm. orchestral stuff, and they've added distortion on the bottom end to an otherwise purely orchestral piece. And I'm sitting there going, Deb, were you listening to music on the TV really, really loud and you blew the speakers out? No, it, it was added in. But yeah, so I mean, we are seeing a lot of that, but also too is you know, so many great things from you know, earlier eras you know, were amps, were kind of, there was a distortion coming from the amps. There was distortion coming from whether you wanted it or not, sometimes the preamps, you know, it's a, uh, Friend of mine used to work for Rupert Neve and said he was always kind of disappointed on like that his early preamps distorted, <laughs> and that's what you know we all love about <laughs> yeah. about it. Um, but like it was one of my favorite things is like you know like like Rush's Moving Pictures record, beautiful record. Yeah. Man, the bass is so distorted on that record, and it gives it which you don't think about really, but when you put on your kind of scientist observational hat, it's like oh my god, that's some distorted bass. That's beautiful. I wouldn't change a thing, and. Uh, but, uh, so but a, a lot of it is having all those tools at your command and mm -hmm. knowing when to use them. Yeah. But a, a friend of mine uh, was a great engineer, and he had an opportunity to work over in India on some Bollywood stuff. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going I'm to show these people how it's done. And he kind of came in and, uh, you know, um, mixed this beautiful, lovely kind of version of everything. And clients were just bummed out because it was just so wrong because he had done it so clean and so hi-fi. Yeah. And the traditional sound, again, this is what listening to other genres does. Right. You know, tr it's a little bit less now, but uh, Indian music, both like traditional Carnactic music and uh, pop music, very distorted mid-range. Hmm. Even, even the great singers have a very <laughs> kind of nasally thing that cuts through really well. It actually, if you're on a little transistor radio, it cuts through really, really well. And so transistor radio, those are two words I haven't heard yeah. together in a very long time. <laughs> Which, again, this is our new equivalent. Of right. It. Um, but, you know, the mistake he had made of trying to go hi-fi and the, what people wanted, the excitement and the edge and the energy. So if you listen to like classic Bollywood, like from the 60s and 70s, which is great music, but you'll listen how much of that has these often these really aggressive forward and distorted mid-range. Uh, on the vocals, on the solo instruments, yeah. on a lot of things. And that creates an energy and excitement because it's starting to break up and edgy. And also 
the same thing as I mentioned before, Chris Lord Algae. That is the thing of Chris Lord Algae. Chris yeah. Lord Algae. Exciting you know, or boring. Mixes like Bollywood. His 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 high mids are really aggressive. There's a lot of distortion and stuff breaking up. And the thing about the what makes Chris Lord Algae so good, and he's not my favorite mix in the world, but you listen to a mix he did on this, and then you mix, listen to it on an audio file system, and it's not that different of an experience. Wow. He, he, it's because that really compressed, aggressive mid-range thing, it translates really well across systems. So you kind of know how it's going to sound in the car, how it's going to sound in other places. So we've got about two and a half minutes left, and I saw a question go by. Here we go. Uh, from David Clipperton. Uh, is there anything you do differently in a mix for placement on film and TV versus an album release? Um, really, the big thing would be to make sure that we've got alternates. Like if I know this is something that we're definitely trying to, um, that you know, that my, my client is going to be, their main goal is um, uh, film and TV kind of placement make sure that we've got stems, especially if they're with a library. You know, mm -hmm. If you're with a library, um, it, ask them if they have a preferred delivery spec. Because some of them actually will. They will have, yeah. we would like these kind of RMS levels for final mix. We would like this much, <laughs> you know, silence at the beginning. So those things want to make sure that spec or, you know, we really need solos as a separate pass or any of those kind of things that your library client might want. Yeah. But for the most part, no. Just trying to make a, a good sounding track and again if you want your stuff pitched to film and tv always hit bare minimum make an instrument instrumental mix right because so many people will lose opportunities because they don't have an instrumental mix easily available greatest example of how that gets used is there you, the camera ostensibly a person walks into a bar and uh, the camera finds a couple on the dance floor in the middle of a bar and it's a honky-tonk and there's some country music playing in the background and when the couple has that little 10 second conversation there won't be a vocal underneath it mm -hmm. they will literally pop the vocal out of the music just long enough so you can hear them have a conversation with all the hubbub around them and then the vocal magically appears again so there you go all right folks we are out of time this flew by as always um so um, Ronan's going to be at the Road Rally coming yes. up uh, November 3rd is registration night, um, open mics in the jam room Thursday night. Um, the schedule is up on the website. We had a couple of minor changes today. People saying, I don't like the way the description of my thing is written, blah, blah, blah. We are also getting very close to posting the classes um, and the one-to-ones and the mentor bios and all that stuff. Um, we're just waiting for people. It's like, can, can I get it to you tomorrow? And that was three days ago. And, and we hate to just keep re-uploading it to the website, sending it to the printer. Um, so it's coming, but the main schedule is up. Go to taxi.com and look at, uh, it says free convention in the top nav. Um, Ronan will be there doing one-to-one -one mentoring. Uh, he'll be doing a couple of classes. Yeah. Um, and mentor lunches? Are no, not doing, not doing those this year, but I think I am doing the, the drive-by kind of thing, okay. or what, whatever they're called now. Though. Right, drive-by. We give him an AK and people walk by. Exactly. <laughs> they're electric scooters and he sprays them with gunfire. Now, uh, drive-bys are basically one-to-one -one mentoring opportunities that happen in the early evening. So the, the people that didn't have a chance to get a one-to-one -one mentor of their choice, or maybe they went to somebody for songwriting by day, but they've got a mixed question they'd like to ask Ronan. 
can drive by and stop in. Um, so that's that, you guys. Yeah. And uh, I'll have a table in the bookseller's room that I'll oh, probably, right. it's probably where I kind of hang out and get off my feet when I'm not, not teaching so you can come by and say hello. Um, what else do I want to tell you guys? Oh, our guest next week on Taxi TV will be Robin Frederick, a little road rally warm-up for her. Uh, always exciting to have her on the show. And with that, I bid you a fond farewell. Ronan, thank you. Yeah, thank you, uh, and thanks, always, everybody, for tuning in. I love hanging out with you. Uh, see you next week, you guys, on another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live! <laughs>